Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Strangers in Jerusalem YouTube channel and podcast, where we explore the Gospels and the Jesus traditions within their Jewish context. In this video, we will be discussing the material that precedes Jesus' birth, the Jewish context of, of that material. So, namely, we will be discussing the genealogy and the Annunciation of Jesus. So, follow me. Let's go to Jerusalem. So in class, in a semester, the, one of the early discussions we have about Jesus in the New Testament is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, when, we, when Jews or Christians read the Bible, certain sections of the Bible that have lists of people, a genealogy, you know, people begetting people who beget more people, it's very boring and we usually just skip that. How, how do we approach Jesus' genealogy? So there's only two, two genealogies. There's one in Matthew and there's one in Luke. As we look at those, we, let's keep in mind that what we're trying to do here is to place those texts or those traditions within a Jewish context. Basically, what we're trying to do is imagine ourselves going back in time and watching and observing, observing how Jews at the time of Jesus or in the generations after Jesus would have interpreted these traditions. The genealogy in Matthew and Luke, we've got Matthew uh, chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. Now. First thing to note is that these genealogies are not the same. In fact, they're so different that they do not even agree on the name of Jesus's uh, grandfather. And, and you can go and read those and compare them. They're not the same. They're completely different. So already we know that there's something that the author of Matthew and the author of Luke is trying to emphasize because they're, they're radically different. So let's start with Matthew. In the very first verse in Matthew 1.1, we see that the focus of the entire genealogy is on three distinct individuals. There's Abraham, and there's David, and Jesus. In fact, here, right here, in Matthew 1.1, it says, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. So he clues us in right from the beginning of his gospel. Jesus not, uh, is the Messiah, but also we're going to connect him to David and to Abraham. Okay, so then if we fast forward into Matthew, into verse, in Matthew 1.17, we read this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So here we see that the author of Matthew wants us, he doesn't, he doesn't just throw in the names and hope that we'll count them and say, ah, there's 14 people here, and then there's a, sort of, there's a watershed event or a particular time that it starts over and then there's 14 new names and then again a third time 14 names. He doesn't just hope that we catch on, he specifically states the fact that this is what's going on. Okay, so we have to ask ourselves why is the author of Matthew doing that? There's something else intriguing about his genealogy and that that is that the author of Matthew omits, he takes out five names, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. These five names he takes out, he doesn't even he, he doesn't want to put them in there. He, he specifically, deliberately takes those out. What we see then, what it appears to be, is that the author of Matthew goes out of his way to include 42 names, 40, the names of 42 people. The question we ask is, why is he doing that? There's a term called gematria. This is a Greek term that is, that, that basically what it is, is a, a system where you attach the, a number to the letter of the alphabet. 
So A equals one, B equals two, C equals three, so on and so forth. And in Greek, what, what people would do in the ancient world, they did this in Hebrew also, but especially in the Greek world, what they did is they would take us a, a name of a person, a name of an individual, and they would add up the numerical value and to attach some value to that number. So let me give you an example. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, verse 18, we read this. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. So the author of Revelation tells us that what they're doing is they have a number for the beast, that is a number of a person, and here's the number, 666. Now, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of books and articles and little little write-ups from the middle uh, from the medieval period all the way up into the present day uh, entire industry dedicated to the mark of the beast people are trying to a lot of times christian uh, devotional writers are trying to figure out you know what's the mark of the beast what's this mystery you and that chip are connected forever linked the chip it's in the bible it's the mark of the beast question today is is the microchip obama is going to implement in 2017 the mark of the beast Here's why I don't think it is. For one thing, he won't still be president in 2017. Uh, also, he's not the Antichrist because um, so many people think he is. Uh, frankly, when President Bush was president, um, I got a lot of letters from the other side thinking that he was the Antichrist. Uh, no American president is going to be the Antichrist because half the people in the country think he is. And the Bible is clear that no one will suspect the Antichrist of being the Antichrist for the first three and a half years of his reign. What does 666 mean in the Bible? What does the mark of the beast represent? And how can I avoid its mark? Who is the beast of Revelation 13? You will want to know these Bible answers. This is a simple, this is very simple. What this number, the person that this number refers to is probably Nero Caesar, who lived between, the, between 37 and 68 CE. If you take the Greek letters of Nero and you add them up, you get 666. In fact, there is a, there's an alternate spelling of the name Nero, uh, just slight, a slight variation in the name. And if you add those letters up, you get a, numer a numerical value of 616, 616. And actually some of the ancient manuscripts have 616. So others have 666. So that's simple enough. Now, why would the author of the book of Revelation want us to focus, want us to attach a beast, a mark of the beast to Nero Caesar? Well, Caesar was a bad guy. He persecuted Christians, killed many Christians in the 60s. And it makes sense that this is our guy who he's talking about. With that little bit of scholarship right there, we can sweep away hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of speculation, Christian speculation, on who this person is and what the mark of the beast is and, and what all that is. This, uh, this is a plug for let's understand the text in, on its own terms and not try to cram in our own ideas and biases and, and presuppositions and put them into the text, because then we get hundreds of thousands of uh, wasted articles trying to identify who this beast is. It's pretty clear it's Nero Caesar. Now, the reason why we go through that explanation is because Matthew, the author of Matthew, seems to be doing the same thing. So let me, let me show you here on the screen, and those of you who are uh, getting this in a podcast, I will explain it. The name David, the Hebrew letter Dalit, Vav Dalit, three letters, DVD, basically. In Hebrew, you, D or Dalit equals four, the Vav equals six, and then Dalit equals four. So if you add up the number four, and the number six and the number four, you get 14. This is interesting because it, se it seems that the author of Matthew has three consonants totaling 
14, you multiply 3 times 14 and you get 42 names. So you can see that he's clearly playing with numbers here and he wants people to focus on David. And he's trying to use this Jewish gematria principle to try to highlight David. Louis Finkelstein, he's a Jewish scholar at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Here's how he explains the use of the, term, of the number 14 in early Jewish literature. The number 14 is not accidental. It corresponds to the number of high priests from Aaron to the establishment of Solomon's temple, the number of high priests from the establishment of the temple until Yahdua, that's the name of the last high priest mentioned in scripture. It is clear that a mystic significance was attached to this number in Jewish tradition. Various groups maintain that it was, not, that it was no accident that the number of links in the chain of what it considered the authoritative tradition from Moses and Aaron was a multiple of the mystic number seven. So what it seems to be, what Matthew seems to be doing based on this is he knows about this. He knows of how early Jews trace their, their theological lineage and their, their authoritative lineage. And he wants to use this principle. So here's another Jewish scholar, Samuel Locke, suggested that perhaps Matthew was jabbing little, little jabs at the Pharisees slash rabbis in Jesus's genealogy. So Dr. Locke imagines the author Matthew saying, quote, you think that the tradition, you Jews, you rabbis, think that the tradition has been transmitted to you from Moses by way of 14 generations. On the contrary, Jesus received the tradition from Abraham, and his genealogy has three times 14 generations, going back to Abraham, to the patriarch. Again, we can see how this context, if we understand the Jewish context and what the rabbis are doing and the sages, we can see how the author of Matthew is probably trying to use all that. Uh, those customs, literary customs, to explain Jesus. Okay, so what about Luke's genealogy? Luke does not employ the same symmetrical structure. L the author of Luke, his genealogy extends the line back to not just Abraham, but back to Adam, and it contains 77 names. So it's not, you know, it's not using 42, but it's still, you know, 77 is a, is a very symbolic number. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Luke and Matthew as we go along and discuss Jesus's birth narratives. But another thing to pay attention to is the names specifically in the genealogy. Those of you who cannot see the screen right now, I have every single name that mentions, all 42 names mentioned in Matthew up here on the screen. But for those who can't see it, I've highlighted five names. Well, I've highlighted more. I've highlighted Abraham and David, but other than those, I've highlighted five names. We have Tamar, and, and these are all women. And it's kind of unusual. You have all these men, and then you have five women that seems to be random in there. You have Tamar, you have Rahav, you have Ruth, and then it says the wife of Urias, who is Bathsheba. And then you have a fifth name, and that is Mother Mary. That is Mary all the way at the bottom of the list. Now, question is, what are we to do with these five names of women? Well, if we line them up, we get, we get this story. So first we have Tamar. Who was Tamar? So if you remember, Tamar conceived of twins, Perez and Zerah, the former of which was the ancestor of David. What's interesting about Tamar is that it's not only that she is an ancestor of David, but it's how she, how she got pregnant. If you remember the Judah and Tamar story, Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, has the situation where his son marries Tamar and his son dies, and then another son marries her and refuses to, to impregnate her. And then the Lord kills him off 
And then another son, he's too young. Actually, another son uh, refuses to impregnate her. The Lord kills him. And then finally, a, a, another son who's too young to marry Tamar. Uh, Judah says, in the future, my third son will, uh, will marry Tamar. Okay, so then he grows up and they are, they're not married. Judah goes against his word. So Tamar gets desperate to stay into the family and to stay connected to, to Judah and that household. So she dresses up as a prostitute and stands at the, the gate of one of the, of the one of the towns that she knows Judah is coming to, and Judah shows up, doesn't recognize Tamar. She's in disguise as a prostitute. He sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and the result is these two, these twins. Okay, so it's a very scandalous story, and so we learn that Tamar she has a, a questionable past, sexual profile, a questionable, a questionable uh, sexual profile, and she's an ancestor of David. Okay, what about the next woman? We have Rahab. If you remember, Rahab is the harlot who bore. Boaz. Boaz is also an ancestor of David, and we read about this in Ruth 4. So again, a non-Israelite, a questionable sexual profile, she's a harlot, and an ancestor of David. Then we get to Ruth. Again, uh, you read the story of Ruth. She is a non-Israelite ancestor of David, who also appears to have engaged in sexual sin with Boaz. We're not quite sure exactly what the nature of this sexual uh, sin is. It might not be sexual. It's, but it does seem to be something strange going on where she, she goes into where Boaz is sleeping and it says she uncovers his feet and then lays with him and he's kind of surprised when he gets up. And he's, you know, and it, there, it seems to be that there's something going on that's unsavory. But who knows? Either way, she's a non-Israelite and she's an ancestor of David. The fourth woman, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. We all know that story. She commits adultery with David. Okay, what do we do with this? I think that... The author of Matthew is strategically highlighting these women, placing them in the genealogy to make a statement. Now, what statement is that? Well, if we look at the rumors, if we look at some of the ancient texts, we see that rumors had circulated that Mary conceived Jesus out of wedlock. Here's a few examples. In John 8, 41, and you can go look at the full context, but in John 8, 41, there are, there's a group of people who, who say, we are not illegitimate children. And it seems to be implying that they think that Jesus is an illegitimate child. And they say, we are not illegitimate children. That's in John 8. Also, in addition to that, there are Jewish texts, rabbinic texts. They preserved a scandal, this rumor, that Mary had committed adultery with a Roman soldier named Panthera. Even, they even give the guy's name, Panthera. Now, Origen, he's a, he's a, he's a third century Christian theologian. He lived 185 to 254 CE. He verifies this and he says, let us return, however, to the words put into the mouth of the Jew, this a Jewish guy that he is, he's talking about in his text. Okay, so let's return, however, to the words put into the mouth of the Jew, where, quote, the mother of Jesus is described as having been turned out by the carpenter who was betrothed to her as she had been convicted of adultery and had a child by a certain soldier named Panthera. So there's a little bit of internal evidence in the Gospels that this rumor was going around, also in Jewish literature and in early Christian literature, that this rumor had stuck around and that it was there. Okay, what seems to be happening is that the author of Matthew knows about these, you know, he's writing 40 to 50 years after the death of Jesus, he knows about these rumors and he wants to deal with that head on. And he wants to, he wants to say that even if Mary had Jesus out of wedlock, and that Jesus was born in a sort of scandalous situation, he still could be the Messiah. After all, look at all these other women 
who, who were ancestors of David, the line, the, the line of David came through these non-Israelite women and women who had, who were questionable in terms of their sexual purity or, or whatever. I think he's trying to deal with this head on. Obviously, it, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but Christians don't believe that Jesus was born out of wedlock and that probably the author of Matthew doesn't believe that. But he's dealing with this head on. Now, notice that Mary's conception in the story, in Matthew, Mary's conception immediately follows Jesus's genealogy. So he gives Jesus' Jesus's genealogy and then he jumps right to Mary's conception. So there's again, there's evidence that he's saying, okay, here's the story of the lineage of David leading to Jesus. And then, he, and then he's trying to clear that up, trying to deal with that scandal. And then he jumps right to Mary's conception. So that kind of, that helps us understand what the author of Matthew is trying to do. There's a few other things we need to, to think about. In the Gospel of Matthew, in Jesus' genealogy, Jesus is inextricably linked to royalty, the Judaic kings in David's line. He's definitely making this claim. Jesus is the the son of royalty. We finally get to the Gospel of Luke a little bit. What the author of Luke is doing is the opposite. There's no line of kings. He is not trying to show that Jesus is royalty, or at least his, his lineage. He, Jesus does not descend through David's son Solomon, but through David's son Nathan. This situates probably Jesus within the prophecy of Isaiah 11.1, 1, where we, look, we see the prophecy of the stump of Jesse, or this terminology, the stump of Jesse. The author of Luke seems to want to bypass the, kin, the kingship lineage of Judah that went awry and instead trace the Messiah back to the stump of Jesse, showing that God would restore Israel through a new branch of David through Jesus. So that's the end of this video, but I want you guys, if you want to know more about this subject, go to the, the book, The Strangers in Jerusalem. You'll get more there. And next time we'll move forward to the Jesus traditions of his birth and the, con the Jewish context of his birth. So.